Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. On Wednesday afternoon, in a crowded committee room in the heart of Westminster, a group of MPs from across the political spectrum gathered for what turned out to be a three-hour grilling of Boris Johnson. Order, order. This is a public evidence session of the House of Commons Committee of Privileges. More than a year after the Partygate scandal broke, the committee wasn't trying to establish if the rules had been broken. We know they had. But whether Boris Johnson had lied to Parliament about them at moments like this. Repeat, Mr Speaker, that I have been repeatedly assured since these allegations emerged that there was no party and that, and that no Covid rules were broken. And that is what I have been repeatedly assured. What I can tell the right honourable gentleman is that uh, is that all guidance was followed uh, completely. We won't know what the select committee has decided for some weeks, but Boris Johnson's friends and supporters have already been out in force undermining its conclusions. I think he's winning in the court of public opinion who see this as a kangaroo court. But for Westminster watchers, Wednesday seemed like the beginning of the end. I really do think in some ways it felt like the sort of season finale of Boris Johnson. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, is it over for Boris Johnson? My name is Henry Zeffman and I am Associate Political Editor of The Times. Henry, it's been quite a week in Westminster. Take us back to Wednesday afternoon where the world seemed to be watching. Everyone was gathered for the Privileges Committee hearing, long awaited, where Boris Johnson was finally going to have to answer questions about Partygate. Before he did, as the process began... We watched him swearing an oath on the Bible. Yes, I swear by Almighty God that the evidence I shall give for this committee shall be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. So help me God. Thank you very much. That felt quite new. We haven't seen that in many select committees in Parliament. Is that unusual? It's extremely unusual. I've watched a lot of select committees in my job. 
most of them a lot more boring than the Privileges Committee one with Boris Johnson, I must say. I've never seen a witness required to swear the oath before. Uh, it does happen, but really infrequently. And so what I think the committee were doing there was, frankly, it was a pretty theatrical way of demonstrating both to Boris Johnson and to the broader public, the world, that his truthfulness was on trial here, put before the closest thing you get in parliamentary process to a trial. And it's worth noting, by the way, that this was not like a minister being called before a departmental select committee. Most people in Westminster, to be completely candid, won't have known that the Privileges Committee existed until about a year ago when the House of Commons referred this case to it. The fact that the hearing looked and felt so unusual right from the start with that oath was a reminder that it is so unusual for the Privileges Committee to be called into action and to examine anyone's truthfulness before Parliament, let alone a former Prime Minister. Well, Henry, just remind us, because, you know, you're right, I think most people hadn't heard of it before. What exactly is the Privileges Committee? Who's on it and what are its powers? Like any other committee of the House of Commons, it consists of small handful, in this case seven MPs drawn across party divides, but broadly reflecting the balance of MPs in the House of Commons. So of the seven MPs on it, four of them are Conservatives, two Labour, one Scottish National Party. The committee reflects in its entirety the membership of the Standards Committee, which we hear a lot more about. That's what investigates sort of general wrongdoing by MPs. The difference between the Privileges Committee and the Standards Committee is that the Privileges Committee investigates a very specific form of wrongdoing or alleged wrongdoing, which is it investigates whether, well, questions of privilege, of parliamentary privilege, whether parliamentarians have been held in contempt or not. And at this hearing, what was the question that they were trying to answer? There's a sort of straightforward question, but it's, it, it then gets more complicated. I knew it would. Yeah. The Privileges Committee's purpose in this inquiry is to decide whether or not Mr Johnson misled the House of Commons, whether or not he committed a contempt of the House, and whether or not this was in any way intentional or reckless. The opening this question is, did Boris Johnson mislead Parliament? Yes or no? He's basically accepted that the answer is yes. Then the question is whether he did so intentionally or recklessly and that's obviously a harder question to answer and then the final question is if he did do so intentionally or recklessly was he in contempt of parliament by so doing and then the committee has to answer a further question should they find that he was in contempt of parliament they may not but should they find that he was in contempt of parliament then they have to answer a further question which is perhaps the most complicated of the lot which is, what should the penalty be, if indeed they want to impose one? And there is not a lot of precedent for what should the penalty be for a recent former prime minister, recklessly or intentionally or whatever they might find, misleading the House of Commons over parties in Downing Street during a pandemic. So that's quite a hard question to know what they will answer to. But the stakes are unbelievably high. And that's for one very simple reason which is that if any MP is suspended 
from the House of Commons for 10 days or more. They face a recall petition, which is a fancy way of saying that electors in their constituency, registered voters in their constituency, will have the opportunity to force a by-election. And if enough of them say they want a by-election, then that MP, in this case Boris Johnson, would be expelled from the House of Commons and a by-election would take place. So what we are looking at here from the opening chain of did he mislead Parliament to the question of what his motivations might have been and so on, is ultimately this committee has the opportunity, perhaps, to bring to a close Boris Johnson's career in Parliament. You know, I think a lot of people were completely mesmerised by the theatre of the event. But talk us through the actual evidence that was being discussed. What is the case against Boris Johnson? Well, we actually saw a lot of the evidence in the run-up to the hearing. That was an unusual feature of this. So about a fortnight, just over a fortnight before the hearing, the Privileges Committee published essentially their case and they sent it to Boris Johnson, but they also published it publicly. And they said, basically, these are the themes that our questioning is going to cover. And so their case was that on four separate occasions, Boris Johnson misled the House of Commons, that he did not receive adequate assurances, sufficiently adequate assurances for him to be able to tell the House of Commons that he had received assurances that the rules were followed at all times. And then finally, that he did not correct the record quickly enough after discovering that he had misled Parliament. That's basically the crux of their case. Then there's a sort of thing running throughout their case in addition, which is the doctrine of obviousness. I must have known, or to get back to the conversation we've had, the doctrine of obviousness. Uh, if, if it was obvious to me, then it would have been obvious to those other senior... It was best expressed by Harriet Harman. If I was going at 100 miles an hour and I saw the speedometer saying 100 miles an hour, it would be a bit odd, wouldn't it, if I said somebody assured me that I wasn't, because it's what you've seen with your own eyes. Yeah, with great so respect. do you actually think that we're a bit, we would be entitled to be a bit dismayed about the flimsy no. nature of this assurance no. when we took it at face value? And so basically their case is... It should have been obvious to you that you were misleading MPs because you were at many, though not all, of these events and you wrote the rules. Therefore, it should have been clear to you that the rules were being broken. And Boris Johnson completely disputes that. He says that he thought the rules were being followed. He remains baffled, pretty clear from the hearing, that he received a fixed penalty notice for his 56th birthday event in the Cabinet Room. But basically, that is the committee's case. Clearly, everybody accepts that what he said was wrong. But in terms of whether it was intentional or reckless, was there any hint from his side how he was trying to pitch what he'd said to Parliament? I think Johnson's language at the start of the hearing was quite emotional. I'm here to say to you, hand on heart, that I did not lie to the House. When those statements were made, they were made in good faith and on the basis of what I honestly knew and believed at the time. And we also sort of heard questions from people like Sir Bernard Jenkin, who, you know, as a member of the Conservative Party on the right of the party, Brexiteer, it does feel quite unusual hearing him ask tough questions of Boris Johnson. But, you know, he talked quite a lot around social distancing. Talk us through that. I think what the committee showed is what a lot of us who cover 
politics no which is that a lot of mps whatever their ideological background have you know have a lot of integrity and do care about this stuff what bernard jenkin was asking about was a series of leaving drinks and one in particular that he really got into with boris johnson was the leaving drinks for lee kane former director of communications in november 2020 and he uh sort of blew up in the room this photo of boris johnson addressing a drinks event, we think it was an impromptu drinks event for Lee Kane in November 2020, the day that he quit slash was sacked. This was held in the vestibule outside the press office in number 10. Between 15 and 20 people were present and you gave a speech. And the evidence for this is at page nine of the evidence bundle. Do you accept that these facts are correct? Uh, yes. And you, you can see in this photo people standing together, table packed with drinks and he basically asked hang on a second the people here aren't following social distancing how can you have thought that this was possibly within the rules and boris johnson i think really struggled in that section he had a few different arguments none of which i mean visibly none of which persuaded the committee so first he said the social distancing rules were just that you needed to follow all the social distancing guidelines i should say for workplaces were just that they ought to be followed where possible. Then he said, well, look, there were loads of mitigations in place. We had loads of tests and there were screens and barriers, and, uh, at which point Bernard Jenkins said, well, hang on a second, where are the screens in this photo? Mm. Boris Johnson said, oh, well, they're in the room next door, which I don't think really worked. And then he ultimately said, in what I thought was one of the, the really weakest parts of his case, he said that the leaving drinks were necessary. Those specific leaving drinks were necessary for work purposes because he had to show Downing Street staff that there was no rancour emanating from Lee Kane's departure. To me, my presence there was felt by the uh, by the Met to be uh, not to be unlawful. Uh, they agreed that it was a work-related event, and I, I believe it was absolutely essential for work purposes. Right. Well, I'm asking about the guidance at the moment. Yes, and I'm telling you that I believe the guidance okay, no. is was a, uh, so. What, what you've got to understand when I looked at that group. It did not for one second occur to me that we were in breach of the guidance given the logistical difficulties we faced in number 10 and the need to have urgent meetings such as this. Which I think the committee was visibly unimpressed by. This gathering it appears to show multiple bottles of alcohol in the bottom right-hand corner of the, the photograph. Would you say that that is strictly necessary for a work event? It's it's customary to uh, say farewell to people in this country with a, a toast. Uh, I didn't see any sign of, of drunkenness or, or, or excess and uh, had no knowledge of... I, I don't know why uh, anybody would have been fined for that event. I don't know what, what happened. And he talked a lot about how hard people in officials in Downing Street were working throughout the pandemic and said that at various points morale was starting to sag and that it was very important to motivate staff and he said that various leaving drinks and also the garden party which wasn't a leaving drinks were necessary to pet people up a bit i will believe till the day i die that it was my job to thank staff for what they had done especially during a crisis like covid which kept coming back which seemed to have no end and when people's morale did i'm afraid begin to sink but never mind. bernard jenkin then asked him whether at the Downing Street podium at one of those daily press conferences, whether if someone had called up and said, I run a business, I would like to hold leaving drinks during the pandemic, 
would you have said yes? Boris Johnson claimed that he would have said basically yes. And I just don't think that washed with the committee or indeed with anyone who who recalls those press conferences and, and the kinds of advice that was dispensed from the podium. Yeah. And wasn't that also the night there was a party in the prime ministerial flat upstairs to effectively celebrate his leaving? Yes. I mean, allegedly, um, though uh, the committee didn't really get into that. And in fact, they didn't get into that at all, just as Sue Gray didn't and the Metropolitan Police didn't. I think that one, we're going to have to wait for memoirs, if if anything, <laughs> to uh, find out what happened. Sorry, the, the, the answer is... He later on became really visibly exasperated. He, he said to Bernard Jenkin at one point that his line of questioning was absolute nonsense. Nobody raised with me uh, or, or had any concern before I stood up on, 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 on December the 1st about those events. You did not ask. I asked... I did... See, this is complete nonsense. I mean, complete nonsense. I asked the relevant people they were senior people. They'd been working very hard. I think at another point he said that the committee would be, quotes, insane to find against him. Well, Henry, you mentioned Sue Gray. And I think anybody listening to this, Partygate does feel like a saga that's gone on forever. But, you know, we all remember that there was a huge investigation by Sue Gray, civil servant, seemed to be independent, but we now know she is going to work for Keir Starmer. But you always had the reputation of being fearlessly independent when she carried out this investigation. Is the select committee basing some of their questions on her evidence or is that completely separate? Up to a point, some of what the committee has used for its evidence is transcripts of interviews held by Sue Gray or by other officials as part of her investigation. But they say wherever they have used aspects of those transcripts, they've gone back to the person Sue Gray interviewed and asked them to agree that they still stand by that and to sign a sort of sworn statement of truth, effectively a written oath to go alongside that. Most of the people, as far as I can tell, really, they've actually solicited their own interviews from, uh, or rather their own written questionnaires with. Um, So it's there, but it's not a big part of it. Actually, intriguingly, given that Boris Johnson and his allies cried foul when it emerged a few weeks ago that Sue Gray was going to join the Labour Party, they said the Privileges Committee's case is almost entirely built on Sue Gray's work and therefore the whole process is, it, it must be junked. Yeah, actually, Boris Johnson's case relies in large part on, or in decent part, on things that Sue Gray has said, not just on her transcripts, but also on her findings. You know, Boris Johnson often, or said in his written submission, you know, various events were found by Sue Gray not to have broken the rules. I mean, you know, one of the complicating, aggravating factors, I think, for all sides throughout, actually, has been not the Sue Gray investigation, but the Metropolitan Police investigation, which ultimately superseded it or superseded most of the Sue Gray investigation because the Met issued a load of fines for a few different events, but has never given a public explanation of why it fined certain people for some events and other people for other events. And given ultimately they are the ones who have decided whether events broke rules, it would be really helpful to have their interpretation, but we're never going to get that. Coming up, what happens next? That's after a quick message from a colleague. 
I'm Tim Shipman, the chief political commentator of the Sunday Times. Writing about British politics is part therapy, it's part investigation, and it's part comedy. And as Dr Johnson didn't quite say, if you're tired of British politics, you're tired of life. And I'm not tired of life. But we can only do this thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Repeat, Mr. Speaker, that I have been repeatedly assured since these allegations emerged that there was no party and that and that no COVID rules were broken and that is what I have been repeatedly assured. Before we come to Wednesday afternoon, the Privileges Committee had already released what they saw as the evidence they were basing their questions on publicly a couple of weeks beforehand and then Earlier this week, we suddenly get Boris Johnson's version of the same thing. We were told it was sort of an explosive dossier of evidence that would prove he hadn't intentionally misled people. Just talk us through what it actually said. What I was struck by when you stripped back Boris Johnson's evidence was that he basically agrees with the committee about what transpired. But what he disagrees with is about how they should judge him. Ultimately, what his submission boiled down to was, yes, my assurance that I gave to the House of Commons was on the basis of conversation with communications advisors. But he argues, and the committee seems to doubt, that was a perfectly reasonable thing to rely on, given A, he's a senior official, and B, he was present at a particular gathering in December the 18th, 2020. That was at that point uppermost in the sort of party scandal. So the Boris Johnson evidence didn't really change the price of fish much. It was more an opportunity to see the kind of argument he makes about why he 
wasn't holding Parliament in contempt. The one sort of slight side thing that was interesting was from a written submission from an MP called Sarah Dines, who at the time was Johnson's parliamentary private secretary. And she told the Privileges Committee that actually she had been in a meeting with Boris Johnson, although she couldn't pinpoint the date, where certain senior civil servants actually had agreed with him that they had followed the rules at all times. And, you know, that would be quite significant. But that piece of evidence was slightly weakened, as Bernard Jenkins pointed out in the hearing, by the fact she said she was only 90%. Well, firstly, she didn't know who it was. And then she said she was 90% sure that one of them was Simon Case, the cabinet secretary. Well, Mm. separately, Simon Case, cabinet secretary, gave evidence to the committee saying that he had never given Boris Johnson any such assurance. So, you know, in some ways, that kind of takes you to to a moot point. And for the public, seeing the document when it was released, I mean, that basically shows that he was turning to his communications expert, the person who tells him how to spin things to the media for advice on this, rather than somebody who would know the rules inside out. And he, as the man who sets the rules, thought his communications advisor would know them better, which does seem surprising. I mean, he said, no, it was not unreasonable for him to rely on a communications advisor because, and I think he's right on this, you know, Jack Doyle was a very senior member of his Downing Street team. Okay, fine, he was a special advisor rather than a civil servant, but that doesn't confer lesser requirements to tell the truth or whatever upon him. Actually, James Slack, his predecessor as director of communications, was was a civil servant, technically. And crucially, what he was discussing with Jack Doyle was an event on December the 18th, 2020, at which Jack Doyle had been present. So it was not so much, what's the line to take, Jack, as what actually happened. Jack, you were there. And, you know, bear in mind, this is now a year on that they're having this conversation. But where things start to get tricky for Boris Johnson is that that was just one event. And there are several other events that MPs thought he was referring to when he said he'd been given repeated assurances that the rules had been followed. And he doesn't seem to have had any equivalent assurance for those events. He was at some of those events. And also he, at some points, suggested that he'd been given assurances that the guidance had been followed. And Jack Doyle is among several people who say they never gave Boris Johnson such an assurance. Oh. I think in so much as you can ever know a politician's mind, let alone Boris Johnson's, he at the very least gave a very convincing performance of someone who genuinely thinks he's done nothing wrong. But then the committee is not here to investigate whether he truly thinks he's done anything wrong. It's to investigate whether he has done anything wrong on the question of contempt of parliament. And Henry, what are Boris Johnson and his team, his his lawyers and his supporters, in fact. But what what are they saying about this committee and about this investigation? I mean, there have been hints of calling it a kangaroo court. (laughs) Well, various different groups there come with various forms of politeness. I mean, Lord Panic, his his main counsel, you know, he has, from his very first submission, attacked the processes that the committee is following and has argued that they would not stand up in a court of law, to which the committee's answer is, this is a parliamentary process, it's not a court of law. But then, yes, Boris Johnson's parliamentary allies are a bit more direct. So Jacob Rees-Mogg has described the committee as a kangaroo court. Nadine Dorries, as soon as the hearing finished, said that the committee should exonerate him. And actually, during the hearing, various of Boris Johnson's allies were sitting there in the room. I wasn't in the hearing, but those who were tell me they were sort of audibly sort of tutting and scoffing at various lines of questioning, which is important because, as I mentioned earlier, This all comes to a vote in the House of Commons eventually. Even if the committee finds against him, I I can't see a world in which Boris Johnson, but also lots of Boris Johnson supporters, just accept that verdict. So, you know, I think what we are hearing from them now 
about the committee is just a taster if it does end up fighting against him. And just give us a hint of what some of those criticisms will be. I mean, Harriet Harman herself came in for some finger pointing. It actually turned out that sometime after Harman had been appointed, that before her appointment, she had tweeted at the point at which Boris Johnson got his fixed penalty notice. She had said, well, hang on, if you accept a fixed penalty notice, that is in the eyes of law an admission of guilt. Is he therefore admitting that he misled Parliament when he said that he hadn't broken any rules? There are some features of this proceeding that are extremely peculiar. I have the utmost respect for you, the Chair, but uh, you've said some things about this matter before reading the evidence, which are plainly uh, and wrongly prejudicial or prejudge the very issue on which you are adjudicating. The thing is, the committee had to be chaired by a Labour MP and a Labour MP of some stature. And it was quite hard to find any Labour MP who hadn't condemned Boris Johnson in some form or other over Downing Street parties. But look, I mean, you can see why Boris Johnson and supporters nevertheless cry foul. Henry, as that hearing was happening, all eyes were on Boris Johnson giving evidence. It's been obvious to others in the building, including the current Prime Minister. Order, order. We will now suspend the sitting whilst the House of Commons votes and we will reconvene in 15 minutes. Thank you. Suddenly, there was a division bell and everybody had to get up and go and vote. MPs were voting on the post-Brexit Northern Ireland bill. Rishi Sunak's new solution for how to solve that thorny problem. Tell us about that and why, as a moment in the middle of all of that theatre, it mattered so much. It mattered apart from anything else because, uh, you know, the vexed question of Northern Ireland and Brexit was actually being settled, or at least for now, in that vote. But it also was a, it made it a sort of one-two of really significant things for Boris Johnson because Boris Johnson has effectively led the rebellion against the Windsor framework against Rishi Sunak's Brexit deal. Uh, He was the first Conservative MP to say that he wouldn't vote for it. He said that in a lavishly paid speech a few weeks beforehand. And he went through the division lobby against Rishi Sunak, as did Liz Truss, and they were only joined by about 20 other Conservative MPs, despite the European Research Group turning itself against the deal as well. So it felt like the closing chapter on on a period of Conservative political life in which... The ERG, Boris Johnson, Liz Truss were the centre of the Conservative Parliamentary Party and had huge influence. You know, actually, they looked incredibly marginal on Wednesday. The thing that really strikes me when I was talking to Conservative MPs in the run-up to the Privileges Committee hearing, it felt like they were kind of over him, good or bad. They just wanted to move past the drama. And I think it does feel like his sort of grip on the psyche of Conservative MPs is much looser than it was. That said, the Tories are still generally about 20 points behind Labour in the polls. And Boris Johnson, for as long as he remains in the Commons, is the Conservatives' most recent election winner. He retains some sort of residual loyalty. But yeah, it looks a lot diminished than where it was even. I mean, look, remember when Liz Truss quit, there were about 100 Tory MPs who wanted him to come back just six weeks after he'd left Downing Street. Things have changed a fair bit since then. And Henry, it's interesting you couched that there with the words, for as long as he remains in Parliament... What happens next with this process? What's the sort of timeline on all of this and what might happen as a result of it? Timeline's a bit unclear. Basically, the committee will take as long as it takes, but I think we're expecting their report before the summer. 
Boris Johnson will receive their report before anyone else. So there's a sort of Maxwellization process, as it's called, where they will send him their proposed report and say, do you have any comments? Would you like to appeal effectively? Although the appeal goes to them. And then at the end of that process, they will lay it before the House of Commons and say, here is our verdict. And if they find against him, here is our recommended sanction. Then the House of Commons will vote on whether to approve that finding and that sanction. And we know it's it's not a, a whipped vote. It will be no. A I mean, they choice. never are, to be fair. But equally, they often just go through on what's called the nod. I.e., it's quite rare for Parliament to have any sort of overt dissent on findings by the Privileges Committee. But yes, I mean, it will be a free vote, and that will look if the if the committee were to recommend a suspension, which is less than ten days, and therefore doesn't put him at risk of a by-election. I'd imagine that there'll be sound and fury, but it will go through. More than 10 days becomes deeply controversial because the stakes would just be so high. The stakes are high because that period of suspension would mean it goes back to his constituency. What do we know about that? I mean, what sort of a battle would he be facing? He could stand in that by-election if he wanted to. But I think on current trends, it's increasingly a marginal seat, but also by-elections, that tends to be turbocharged. I think you'd have to say he'd probably lose it. And would that be the end of Boris Johnson Parliament? I mean, Rishi Sunak in the past has hinted that he wouldn't be offered an, another, a safer seat at the next election. Would there be any chance of a comeback? Of course, there's always a chance of a comeback with Boris Johnson. <laughs> but even Boris Johnson's powers of resurrection might struggle with that scenario. been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, The Times Associate Political Editor, Henry Zeffman. The producers today were James Shield and Priyanka Deladia. The executive producer is Kate Ford. Thanks for listening. Have a lovely weekend.